He is risen. <laughs> people in the world, people in the world imagine God in their own image. Sometimes, as I said to y'all this, earlier this morning, some people, what they do is they go and cut off the tree and they take the half and they use it to warm themselves and they take the other half and they create something to bow down and worship. Of course, we might say that's not a very powerful God. But this is what people do in the world. And another thing that people do in the world is they maybe don't make something with their hands, but they make something with their hearts. This is what people do in the world. But in the church, we have problems as well with making a God in our own hearts. We're tempted with our Bibles in our hands, with our Bibles right in our faces, to think about God in ways that would make Him an idol, something that we're creating in our own hearts. We're tempted to think of God as a genie in, a bo- in the bottle. We're tempted to, like, like we've seen in the past weeks, um, let's go get the ark of God. We've lost 4,000, but hey, listen, we'll win if we go take the ark of God into battle and surely He will keep us from losing because God would never allow himself to be captive. And so we think that we can manipulate God, but we found out God cannot be manipulated. We're tempted to define God like um, people do when they go through a cafeteria line. Our Bibles are in our hands, and we go through the cafeteria line, and we go, you know what? (laughs) I want that and that and that, but I don't want that and that and that. And so sometimes this is what we're tempted to do with the things we read in the Word of God. We're tempted to think at times that God should deal with all men fairly. That if we do good, we should be rewarded for our good. And if we do bad, well, we should get those you know, bad consequences. Jesus addresses that in Luke 13. Y'all remember this. It says that Jesus is talking to his disciples. And there were some Galileans who were making sacrifices. And that Pilate put those men who were making those sacrifices to death. And then he mixed their blood with the blood of their sacrifices. <laughs> and he said, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than those um, who didn't have their blood mixed with their sacrifices? And he says, I tell you no. Now, back in those days, they did believe this. They believed. You remember Job's friends? Now, Job, if you just give it up, just give it up. The reason this has happened to you is because bad things happen to people who do bad things. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Do you think that these Galileans are worse He's saying, I tell you, no, there weren't worse. He says, I tell you that unless you too repent, you will all perish. I remember reading this for the first time years ago. R.C. Sproul said, we ought not to be asking whether they uh, did something wrong or not. We ought to be asking why it wasn't me. Why didn't Pilate cut me to ribbons and mix my blood with my sacrifices? Well, Jesus doesn't let it go. He goes one more time. He says, there were 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell upon them. And Jesus says, do you think that these 18 people were more guilty compared to the ones that the the tower didn't fall on? And he says, I tell you, no. It's not that these guys are better than those guys, but we will all likewise perish if we do not repent. No one is entitled to anything. No one is more acceptable to God based on their good works, based on their better behavior, or based on their better thought life. All of us will perish if we do not repent. So we have our Bibles in our hands. We know what it says, but we're tempted. 
We're tempted to make a God out in our own hearts that's more palatable than what we read in the Bible. We see that he's love. We don't want to think about the wrath. We see see the things about heaven. We don't want to remember the things about hell. So we constantly need to be taught. And this is one of the things we talked about even in our men's group yesterday. We constantly need to tell ourselves God is wise, God is supreme, God is in charge, God's all-powerful, God knows what he's doing even when we don't, and that evil, even though it may look like it has the upper hand, evil will not have the last word. When Jesus comes, he will set everything right. We need to tell ourselves that even when we're going through the difficult things in life. We struggle wanting to make God to be what we want him to be. But God defines himself in his word. He tells us who he is. He tells us what he's like. And we need to see today that he's holy. In our passage, we're going to see that he is holy. Immediately after God brought terrible judgment upon the Israelites, a little later in this chapter, we read in verse 20 where it says, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? So the title this this afternoon, I'll keep wanting to say this evening, the title is God's Holy Wrath. This, This holy God. His holiness is against sin. His wrath reacts to sin. And it must be appeased. First God's holy wrath. It is against sin. God is holy. If we went and read, actually I was, I told the men I'm listening to the Bible on uh, my my phone, and I got to Isaiah 6 today. Holy, 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 the angels sing. God is holy, and because God is holy, he does not tolerate sin. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God, and sin is taken personally by God. When David confessed his sin in Psalm 51, he says, It's against you and you only have I done what is evil in your sight. We could go look at Luke 15. Remember the son, he comes to his senses and says, Father, um, I have sinned before you and in your, before heaven and in your sight. Well, what had these Philistines done that was so bad? You ready for this? What had they done? They were victorious over the Israelites. They killed the 4,000 and 30,000. They took the ark of God, and here's what they're guilty of. They took the ark of God, and they took it to Ashdod, and they placed it where? In the temple of Dagon. Now, what's wrong with that? Now, this God, the God of the Bible, is becoming one of their gods. What does the Bible say about that? The first commandment says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And now they have the ark of God right there with Dagon. They are not recognizing the one true and living God as their God. And this by itself brings God's hand of wrath upon the Philistines. First, God's holy wrath is against sin. Second, God's holy wrath reacts to sin. It's not just against sin, it reacts against sin. In Genesis 3, we all know the story. Adam and Eve did the one thing that was prohibited. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God removed them from the garden. In Genesis chapter 4, God judges Cain's sacrifice, and God judges Cain's murder of his brother. In Genesis 6, God 
destroys the entire earth. Why? Why is only eight people left alive? Because man's thoughts and intents of his heart were only evil all the time. God judges sin. In Genesis 11, men gathered together in the plain of Shinar. And they determined uh, not to subdue the earth, not to fill it, not to multiply. They got in one spot, and what were they going to do? They were going to make a tower and make a name for themselves. They were not going to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. They were going to glorify themselves in one place. And God judged them and confused their speech. We could just go on and on. Even in these days, why is Israel losing 4,000? Why is Israel losing 30,000? It's because they had disobeyed the covenant commandments of God and now they're experiencing judgment. 34,000 of them died. And we talk about Eli, we talk about Hophni, we talk about Phinehas and all the rest of that. Well, now we've got this victorious group of Philistines and not only victorious over Israel, but they've taken God's ark into captivity and they believe that they have power over God. They believe that Dagon is more powerful than the one true and living God. And immediately after they placed the ark in front of Dagon, they immediately begin to realize something's wrong. Remember all the things that went wrong? So they take the ark to Ashdod. That's, they, there was five big cities in, in the, among the Philistines, and Ashdod's, I think it's the biggest one. It's the premier city. And they take the ark and they put it beside Dagon, and the next day Dagon's fallen down. And then things get worse. The next day Dagon's fallen down, his head cut off, and his palms are cut off. And then to, to show you more of the wrath of God, the next day we find out, we find out more that there's rats overrunning the land. And uh, there's so this devastation taking place, and they believe that the rats were more than likely spreading something like the bubonic plague. And so the, Fer- the Pharisees, the Philistines, they are, you remember what we said last week about Jerome's 480 translation of this verse? They were, they, were having, they were suffering in the secret parts of their posteriors. They had hemorrhoids, possibly, we know for sure, tumors, but there's a little bit of... Uh, arguments about whether they're tumors or hemorrhoids but these people are crying these people are dying and it's a bad thing god's against their our god the one true living god is against their god against their land and against their bodies now the ark of god was a great trophy for the philistines and they were very proud of having it and they were not going to part with it very quickly remember what they did things went bad in ashdod but they went took it to to gath but i want to give it up yet when it got to Gath, things go worse in Gath. And then they took it to Ekron. Things continue to get worse. And there's all this devastation going on. And this is a portrait of the wrath of God. Paul tells us the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Romans 1.18. In Romans 6.23 it says the wages of sin is death. So the Philistines have offended God. They've broken His law. And they're dying and they're crying. Now here we are. Let's go back to that statement I made earlier. Here we are with our Bibles open before us. And yet we do not want to believe that God is anything like this. God is a God of holy wrath. I've had people tell me, church going people tell me, my God is a God of love. He's not a God of wrath. I do not want to believe that God is like this. 
I do not want to believe that God would cause his own people, 4,000 people to die, 30,000 more people to die. I do not want to believe that God would cause these Philistines, so many of them, to be plagued in, with tumors and hemorrhoids and their land to be devastated and with their God to be falling down on his face. I don't know that I want to believe in a God like that. We're tempted to redefine God. With our Bibles in our hands, Rabbi Harold Kushner was ministering in a synagogue in Yom, on Yom Kippur, uh, the Jewish Day of the Atonement. In the, in the story I read, says he was distressed over the guilt of his people. And he wrote a book in 1996, and the name of it is How, How Good Do I Need to Be? And this is what he said. He redefines man's fall into sin. He said, a God who punished people, Adam and Eve, so severely for breaking one arbitrary rule was not a God I wanted to believe in. Bible in hand, reading in the Bible, don't know that I want to believe in this God. I don't know that I want to believe in Him. We, we have a romantic idea of God the, the idea of maybe the modern monarch. We see the monarch. We see the chariots. We see the, all the pomp and circumstance. Mighty-looking Queen Elizabeth or mighty-looking whatever king we might be talking about. Mighty to look at. Wonderful to be blessed by. But we don't want that person to judge us. Now let's ask a question of the Philistines. Would the Philistines agree with Rabbi Kushner's book? First-hand experience. <laughs> I'm hurting. People are dying. There's rats. There's disease. First-hand experience says, no, I don't agree with Rabbi Kushner. Would Adam and Eve agree with Rabbi Kushner? Would the victims of the flood agree with Rabbi Kushner? They had all experienced God's holy wrath and judgment firsthand. It's just so tempting to redefine God and to make Him into our own image. But the Bible tells us who God is and God is holy. And to be sure, God's wrath is not the wrath of men and women. You know what men, our wrath is like? Our confession tells us that God, God is not a God of passions, without passions. And what that means is, is that God is, he doesn't have wrath like men and women. Now think about men. What is our wrath like? Now, I'm not saying all men are like this because I'm sure some men are crockpots, but most of the time, men are dynamite sticks. You know what men are like? Men get upset and they blow up. And then you know what we do? We run around like I do when I blow up, putting all the pieces back together and saying, I'm sorry, would you please forgive me, Ben? Would you please forgive me, Carrie? Would you please forgive me, Kyle? Would you please forgive me, Mark? You know, we, we run around putting it all back together. But women are like crockpots. So y'all, y'all don't be upset with me for saying that. So I'm like dynamite, my, my wife more like crock pot. You put meat inside the crock pot, you put some liquid in the crock pot, put the lid on it, and then the stuff, the, you know, it heats it up and all the drips and drops hit the top and saturate the meat. And we love that. But what happens is when we get angry about something and we just hold it in and we intensify, intensify, and then we get upset. About three or four weeks later and we go, honey, didn't we deal with that four weeks ago? You know? But men are like dynamite, women are like crockpots, and God is not like that. God's wrath is constant wrath. Always against sin. Always against sin. Always going to react against sin. Uncompromised. 
won't cease to react against sin. It always is being revealed. And every single person who does not have their sins covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, the wrath is constantly opposing and against that person. So first, God's wrath is, God's wrath is against sin. Second, it reacts to sin. And third, God's holy wrath must be appeased. The Philistines knew that they had sinned against God, and they knew they had offended Him. They felt guilty, and they knew they had to appease Him. But how do you remove the guilt? How do you appease this holy God? And so in verse 6 it says, The Philistines call for their priests and diviners. And this is what they ask. What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? How shall we send it back to its place? What's the protocol? Are you with me? Really get hold of this. What's the protocol? And this is what the priests and diviners said, verse 3. If you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it away empty, but you shall surely return to him a guilt offering. Oh man, that's some good thinking. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. They said, then this question in verse 4, What shall be the guilt offering which we shall return to him? And that's the most important question in all the Bible. What is the guilt offering? How can we Philistines, how can we Philistines today have peace with God? And here's their answer. You ready? Verse 4 continued. Five golden tumors and, and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For one plague was on all of you and on your lords, so you shall make likenesses of your tumors and likenesses of your mice that ravage the land. And you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will ease his hand from you, your gods, and your land. There's some really good thinking there. They know they're guilty. They know that they have to give a sacrifice to God that's of great value. And so they go and they're going to compensate the Lord with golden rats and golden tumors, something that costs them a lot of money, gold. Now, it appears that only five gold rats and five golden tumors are going to be given because it says one for the, each of the rulers of the five. But actually, verse 18 tells us that each one of the five rulers had towns and villages under them. So there's going to be five, five rulers, and each ruler has towns and villages under them. So there's going to be a, a, a golden tumor and a golden rat for every village and every town underneath. Every ruler multiplied times five. That's a whole lot of gold. This is a costly sacrifice that they're going to give to God in order to hopefully appease Him. Now, why golden rats and why golden tumors? Now, scholars tell us that they believe this is sympathetic magic. And this is how sympathetic magic works. What you do is you make an image of the thing or the things you want to be rid of. And then, after you make the models of those things... Then you remove them from your vicinity and you will be rid of the problem. Now that is pure paganism, 
But that's exactly what these guys do, hoping to be rid of their problems. Wouldn't that be interesting if we could just put um, a virus in this bottle and put, put a tumor in this bottle, send it out, and it would work? Now let's think about it for a moment. Where are they getting things right? They knew they had offended God. They knew they were under judgment, and they knew they needed to appease God. But here's where they went wrong. Who did they consult? They consulted the priest, and they consulted their diviners. And what could they give to them? They could give to them human reason. They did not consult God's revelation. If they had gone to Israel, and if they had spoken to Samuel, the new prophet on the block, they would have received from him that tumors and rats made of gold, as valuable as that might be, is not valuable enough. They would have been told by him that ram, a ram from the flock without def- defect would be what was necessary. Something of greater value than gold had to be brought to bring peace with God. Gold simply is not enough. And so when you and I, when we come to God, it must be completely apart from our reason, apart from our methods, completely apart from our works, and it must be only according to God's revelation. So here again, we're up against that temptation. With our Bibles in our hands, we want to at times redefine the Lord according to our own image. Think about it like this. We are tempted to think that God cannot be this strict. I mean, look. Now these Philistines are worshiping God. And these Philistines have seen that it should be give, giving, they should give to God a very valuable uh, sacrifice. And we, on the other hand, are worshiping God and we believe in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We're all worshiping God, right? But in the end, no, we're not. We can only come in one way. This is a huge temptation. I've read in years gone by, makes me very sad, but many well-known ministers, after many years of preaching, they have grown into preach what's called the wider mercy of God. I don't know if, if some of you have heard that. But what it is is it moves ministers from saying there's one way to many ways. It moves ministers from saying there's one truth to many truths. And as tempted as we are to believe that, Jesus says, I am the way, not one of many, but I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Peter preaches, there is no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. In Matthew chapter 7, we read that there's a narrow way and those who are on the narrow way find life, and those who are on the broad way, that, lead, that leads to destruction. You and I have sinned against God. We have a guilt barrier between ourselves and God. It needs to be taken care of. It needs to be a valuable sacrifice, but gold's not enough. It has to be according to God's word. It must be the innocent sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That is what is enough. Will you receive it? Another thing that the Philistines got right has to do with urgency. The priests and the diviners, although they got all this other wrong, they were urgent. Look at verse 6. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? 
when God had severely dealt with them, did they not allow the people to go and they departed? You see, the priests and the diviners told the people not to harden their hearts. They knew that Egypt and the people of Egypt had hardened their hearts. And what happened every time they hardened their hearts? It got worse. And so the, the priests and the diviners are going, don't send it to another town. Don't wait any longer. You're doomed unless you get rid of this ark now. So they were urgent. And the urgency, we should learn from that. We should take it to heart. Why should we harden our hearts? You know, sometimes, you know, this is along the lines of maybe somebody coming to know Jesus Christ as Savior, but we all can harden our hearts. And we should tremble when we think of hardening our hearts. We need to look at this judgment that's being poured out among the Philistines and understand it's just a visible picture of what will happen to all sinners for all eternity. When you and I, when we see our sin before God, we know what we deserve. And when God shows us this sacrifice, this perfect sacrifice, I wrote it, and I want to say it the way I wrote it, only a person bent on self-destruction doesn't receive Jesus Christ. He's holy, and, he get, and God has given him to be the one to save us. Do not harden your hearts against the grace of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. What a wonderful day. Thank you for each person who's still here right now. We pray, Father, that we would not harden our hearts against the truth that we know. We pray that we would be tender. We pray that we would tremble at, at sin. Tremble when we see uh, warnings. And Lord, that we would cling to the promises of Jesus Christ. We would hold fast to him and hold fast to the people of God and walk together so that we might be safe and secure as we walk along the path that's narrow. We praise you for Jesus. We thank you for, for the fact that we know that we've been taught he is the way. And help us now to walk on it. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.